If you know and are following Jesus today, what do you have in common with Jesus, with Noah, and with those who have trusted in Jesus in the past who have gone to be with God? In all these instances and in this passage, we see a common theme that there is a speaking of God's Word, the message of truth about God and about Jesus, there is a rejection by the world around, a, an assessment by them that uh, what you are doing is at best foolish and at worst evil by their assessment, a response of rejection and persecution, and yet in the end, a vindication by God, an assessment by God that the words spoken are true, the life lived is honoring to Him, and that the words of condemnation by men pale in comparison to God's final assessment of every person. From this passage, I think we see this truth, that those who know Jesus are called to preach the gospel, both by their words and their lives, through persecution, with a good conscience. Preach the gospel in word and life through persecution, with a good conscience. Peter starts out, along the lines of themes that he has already brought up earlier in the book, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? There is this sense that they are facing persecution, but that they are facing this persecution primarily because they are those who belong to God. Back in the beginning of the book, he said that they are those who are chosen according to God's foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. They are those who have an inheritance promised to them by God. They are those who are undergoing various trials that will result in proven faith and acceptance in God's sight. They are to live in a way, Peter's audience, that reflects the fact that they serve a holy God and have been saved by an imperishable and lasting Word of God. And so, instead of living in malice and deceit in the old way of life, they are to put off those things, and like a baby desires his mother's milk, they are to fervently desire the truth of God. They are coming as God's people, being built into this holy temple in which God dwells in them individually and among them collectively and works through them as the place of his his, uh, work that he's carrying out on earth. He speaks to these who, in the Old Testament, were described as those who were not God's people and not finding forgiveness or mercy because they were living in idolatry and disobedience, much as we looked at from the book of Hosea earlier this morning. And yet, through Christ, even those who formerly were rejected of God's people, and also for those of us as well who are Gentiles who had no part in God's people, are able to draw near to God to become His people and to find God's mercy. Practically, this means that there are going to be situations in which those who follow God in this way are going to find themselves under imperfect authorities. Unjust government, unreasonable masters, unbelieving husbands, and he describes these in chapter 2 into chapter 3. But he says, in the context of all these things, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, are those who Are there those who harm, those who do what is good at certain times? Yes. But generally speaking, in a sort of a proverbial kind of way, the pattern is if you do what's right, you should not have anything to fear from 
the government or those in authority over you. And yet, if you do suffer for the sake of righteousness, if that government proves to be unjust, that master proves to be unreasonable, the husband proves to be unbelieving, if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, he says, you are blessed. You are following in Christ's footsteps. We saw this at the end of chapter, um, at the end of chapter two, that Christ uh, suffered. He did not commit any sin. He did not revile back. He did not try to fix his situation himself. Instead, he entrusted himself to God. In that context, then. Peter says, you don't need to be afraid of their intimidation. Now, we saw earlier here in this uh, book, for example, chapter 2, verse 17, he says to fear God. But the fear that he calls them not to have is a fear toward other people, specifically of their power and their ability to do harm to you because, and he's going to make this point, the worst harm that they can do is death, and Christ already suffered that and it came through it victorious. And the worst thing that they can do in terms of your, your reputation is to speak evil of you, but God's assessment is the one that matters more. We'll see that here in a moment. So he says, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. This refers, interestingly, back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was speaking to a people who are wicked, the people of Judah, people who were trusting in idols, people who were rejecting the practices God wanted them to live in. And Isaiah, among this people, would have been tempted to fear the things that the people feared. But God said to Isaiah, Don't walk in their way. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. There were political things going on in their day where they thought that this nation or that nation was going to come attack them and conquer them. And they were saying, what alliance is going to deliver us? What's going to happen? Are they going to turn on us? Are they not going to turn on us? And he's saying, instead of fearing all that they were afraid of, Isaiah, you fear me. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Peter quotes, I think, this passage in Isaiah for this purpose. He's saying, those who are believing in Jesus, whom Peter's writing to, you are going to be tempted to fear the intimidation of those who are persecuting you. I've been there. I stood before the high priest. I stood before the leaders of the people. And they said, stop speaking the name of Jesus. Peter says, if you find yourself in the same situation, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be in dread of what they are saying to you. Because like Isaiah, and like my own experience, God is the one you should be afraid of. How do you get ready for that moment? You sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's the same that Isaiah said in chapter 8, verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. That idea, sanctify, is to recognize as holy, to set apart. 
in your mind, recognize God is holy. God is the one who is powerful. God is the one who is to be feared. And so if you recognize Jesus is Lord, He is holy, He is the one worthy of your worship, then it doesn't matter if someone over here comes and says, here's this thing to be afraid of because you are on God's side and God will have the victory and God is holy. It's fascinating that he says, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Because we might say, well, they're persecuting me. Why would they want to know why I believe in God whom they don't believe in, who's the reason that they're persecuting me? And the answer is, both in the New Testament and in the course of church history, we see this reality. Those who steadfastly trusted in God provided an example and a testimony that is compelling to those who don't know God. And they see that example and that testimony and they wonder at it and they want to know why. Why are you not afraid? Why are you believing in this thing? Why are you willing to die for this? And certainly one answer is because you've been deceived, but that's not the right answer here. Because there have been people who have died for lost causes and false hopes. But here is one that is true and one that is worth living for and dying for. And to the extent that you have an opportunity in the context of responding in a God-honoring way to opposition and false accusations and all of those sorts of things, to the extent that you have an opportunity to explain to someone why you're responding in that way, he says, be ready to make a defense. Not of yourself. And that's what we want to do in these situations, right? You are foolish. You believe in nonsense. We want to be like, I'm not foolish. I don't believe in nonsense. I, I, I. And he says, no. Be ready to make a defense, not for yourself, not to help them have a good opinion of you, but to help them have a right opinion of the God you claim to serve. Give an account for the hope that is in you. What is your hope? Your hope is not you. Your hope is not necessarily even that God is going to deliver you out of the difficult circumstance because Daniel's friends in Babylon, when they were about to be thrown in the fiery furnace, says God is more than capable of delivering us, but if He does not, that doesn't change our response. Do it with the right attitude, with gentleness and reverence. When Peter and the other apostles, Peter, the one who's writing this book, stood before the high priest, they didn't say to the high priest in a mocking way, we're not going to do what you tell us to do. They said, hey, you judge for yourselves. Should we serve God or should we serve men? Here's what we're going to do. You're going to answer to God for what you do, but they said it in a way that expressed gentleness and reverence. The same is true for us. It is so easy when we face opposition because we are following God that our attitude is first to defend ourselves and then to do it in the wrong way with the wrong attitude. Peter says, don't defend yourself. Explain the truth of the hope that you have in God through Jesus. And don't do it with this sort of belligerent, antagonistic kind of attitude. Do it with a compassion and a 
readiness to acknowledge the fact that the only reason that you are where you are and they are where they are is God's grace, which means there's an opportunity for God's grace to work in their lives, which means instead of doing it harshly, do it gently. Instead of it doing it in fear of them, do it in fear of God, reverence for God. And then verse 16, and keep a good conscience. How do you keep a good conscience? Paul talks a lot about a good conscience. Peter here is talking about a good conscience. What was a good conscience? It was this idea. Here is what God has called me to do, and I am living in such a way that no one has a legitimate basis of accusing me of not living that way. If someone says to you, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? So-and-so is such a liar. You're like, I've never known him to lie a day in his life. That doesn't mean that he never has. It's just, as far as I know, he's always honest with me. What happens to the accusation? It goes so far and it drops to the ground because there's nothing for it to attach to. But to the extent that our lives are characterized by sinfulness, we don't have a good conscience before God, which means we don't have a good reputation before unbelievers who are accusing us of various things, and they have grounds of accusation. He says in verse 16, keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. This goes back to chapter 2 and verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. And then verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We talked about this, I think, that in the early church they were accused of, of strange practices. They said, well, you call each other brother and sister. Are you all living together in some sort of weird commune kind of thing? You talk about eating the body and blood of Christ because that's the way that it's described in the language of the New Testament. Are you guys cannibals? There were all these accusations that were brought against the early church. What accusations are brought against the church today? You hate anybody that's different from you. What other accusations are brought against the church? You just, you just sort of want to be off by yourself and do your own thing and, and ignore everybody else. You don't care about anybody else. There's all sorts of accusations that are brought against the church. To the extent that we come alongside people who are different from us and don't say the sinful things they're doing are okay, but we treat them as fellow human beings, as made in the image of God, as having the possibility of repentance if God works in their lives, that accusation that you hate everybody who's different falls to the ground. If we don't sit isolated, looking at our Bibles, and, and listening to Christian music, and doing our own thing by ourselves, but we open our homes and our lives to people around us who don't know God, the accusation of you're just off by yourself, doing your own thing, don't care about anybody else, falls to the ground. But even if we're doing the right things in response to those accusations, but we're living sinful lives, that becomes a basis that we don't have a good conscience before God and that it undermines our opportunity to defend the truth about God to people around us. Verse 17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, not for doing what is wrong. We saw this as well in chapter 2. Uh, he said that don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. And then verse 20 
of chapter 2, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, this finds favor with God. Good conscience, God's approval, leads to a right reputation before the people around you, even though they may falsely accuse you at various points in time. Peter now goes into an explanation of how it is possible for us to live in this way that is a good conscience before God and a right reputation before people around us and leads to these gospel conversations that point other people to God and the hope of the gospel. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death, but made alive in the Spirit. The reason that you can live not enslaved to sin is because Christ died for sin once for all. That's important because if Christ didn't deal with sin, we would still be in the burden of sin. And if Christ didn't do it in a lasting way, we would keep having to deal with it over and over and over again. But because He died for sin once for all, the just, the one who did no sin, for the unjust, we who sin all the time, on the basis of Christ's death, God can declare you and me individually righteous. That doesn't mean we never have sin, that we don't sin in the moment, or that we will never sin again. It means that in our standing before God, God says, Jesus' payment is sufficient for you. Let me illustrate it this way. If you owe a debt, let's say in your bank account, you expect there to be a positive and there's a negative $5,000. There has to be a, a, a payment to bring that balance up to zero, right? Christ's death deals with the sin, the negative part of it, right? And then Christ's life positively puts in our account, let's say, positive $5,000. Christ's life, His righteousness before God, is in our behalf. Sometimes we think, well, Christ just needed to die so He could get us so that we were not good, not bad in God's sight. But we didn't just need not good, not bad. We needed positively righteousness before God. So Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Because we weren't going to come on our own. We didn't want to come on our own. We were going our own way. But Christ brings us to God. Christ was put to death in the flesh. As, a, as fully God and fully man, He is able as a human being to die. And so He did so. But then He was made alive. He was raised from the dead. Why is the resurrection important? Go read 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ didn't die for sin, and if God then didn't then raise Him, we're preaching a false message. Your sins are not forgiven. You're trusting something foolish. You're living a worthless life. You're to be most pitied because you've missed out on all the good things of this life from a human perspective, and you don't have anything to look forward to in eternity afterward. But because Christ has been raised, because the resurrection is true, you can have forgiveness of sins. You can have deliverance. You can have the eternal life that God holds out. That's verse 18. Verse 19 says, "...in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were disobedient when God's patience kept waiting in the days of Noah." What is that talking about? Well, he's talking about spirits. The word here translated spirits is sometimes used to refer to the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, sometimes used to refer to a spirit or an attitude or a disposition. But in this instance, it is referring to 
probably not spirits of uh, people who have died, but probably referring to angelic beings who are in prison. Let me give you a parallel verse that might help to explain this. Um, in uh, Jude chapter 1, in verse 6, it says, Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. People have all sorts of ideas about what it is that the angels did that led them to be in prison because of their disobedience to God. Peter's point is not get into intense arguments over the what they did. He's simply stating the fact. They disobeyed God. They were put into prison. Christ comes and proclaims victory over them. This is making proclamation. He's proclaiming victory over them. And this anticipates the full and final victory that he's going to have in the end times. For example, Revelation chapter 20. Satan opposes God, bound for a thousand years, freed for a moment, utterly defeated, cast into hell. There is a preview of that in that some of those angels who followed Satan, Lucifer out of heaven also have been bound in anticipation of their final judgment. Christ goes, Christ proclaims His victory over them, this is not a second chance. This is not a purgatory. This is not an opportunity that if you missed out, you'll be okay in the end. Because if it was, why is Peter making such a big deal about the way that you live, being right with God, having a relationship with God now, if there's always going to be that second chance down the road? Peter's point is, you and I have one opportunity. is appointed to man once to die. After this comes, ju comes judgment. Man's judgment doesn't matter. God's judgment does He's going to make that point a little bit later in chapter 4. Christ proclaims victory over spirit. So Christ dies, is raised, ascends after having proclaimed his victory over Satan's schemes and those angels that followed him out of heaven. Then we come to the end of it and it says, baptism, at the end of the chapter, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but appeal to God for a good conscience. Some people have said, well, the days of Noah, there's this thing with the ark. Uh, is the flood symbolic of baptism? No, the flood was a sign of God's judgment. So the parallel is not water and water. The parallel is deliverance and deliverance. Noah and his family were delivered by the ark. You and I are delivered, as it were, through baptism, not that the act of washing dirt off our bodies saves us, but rather that it is symbolic of the spiritual work that has happened. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we've all been baptized by one spirit into one body. There is a spiritual baptism of which water baptism is a picture. Just like Noah and his family were delivered through God's judgment by the ark, you and I are delivered from God's judgment by the work the Spirit has done. Baptism symbolizes it. It becomes an appeal to God for a good conscience. If your sin has been dealt with, you now have the possibility to live with a right conscience before God. If you are living in sin, no possibility of a good conscience. If sin is dealt with by spiritual baptism, pictured by water baptism, you have a possibility of a good conscience before God. How is this accomplished? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is raised, your sins have been forgiven if you're trusting in Jesus. And after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, he proclaims victory over the demons. He 
is exalted over everything in creation, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Jesus' victory and our link to Jesus, which we're going to get into at the beginning of chapter 4, means that if Christ has accomplished this victory and we are with Christ, then we share in this victory. So then it leads us right to chapter 4 and verse 1. Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourself with the same purpose. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Christ dealt with sin and died to pay for sin. You are connected with Jesus, and so your sin has been dealt with, and so there's a sense in which you have also died to sin. So if you've died to sin, Paul will say in another place, how can you still walk in it? Peter says, arm yourself with the same purpose. Christ died to sin, never sinned, You have died to sin. Don't live in sin. Live with a good conscience. Live rejecting sin. Live as those who've been delivered from God's judgment. Why? Verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Or verse 17. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Or all the other passages that we've looked at. If you have time later, go look at Romans 6, this idea of union with Christ. Paul makes the same point in a much more extensive way. Peter just states it. Christ has suffered. He's died to sin. You've suffered with Christ. You've died to sin. Don't live in sin. For one, because God has freed you from it. For another, verse 3, the time already passed is enough time for you to have wasted your life in pursuing all the sinful practices of the people around you. Sensuality and lusts, and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Some people look at this and they say, if Peter is in fact talking to Jewish people, why in the world would he be talking like they're living in Gentile ways? And the answer is, it's quite conceivable that Peter writing to an audience that is scattered throughout the Roman Empire is writing to people who were Jews, but much like, let let me put it this way, if the Samaritans lived right next door to Jerusalem, and were pursuing a false system of worship, then Jewish people scattered around the corners of the Roman Empire could quite easily have lived in ways like their Gentile neighbors, while still considering themselves good Jewish people. Why do I say that? Because in the book of Hosea that we just looked at earlier this morning, they thought we are good and right before God, even though they were pursuing murder and immorality and idolatry, and they looked down on the Assyrians for being murderous and idolatrous and immoral. It's quite possible that Peter's audience is, again, Jewish people who had adopted some of the Gentile practices around them. And even if he's talking to Gentile believers, which Paul makes that point over and over again, you don't have to live this way anymore because you are a new creature in Christ. So what sort of things are they supposed to not live in anymore? Sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. The characteristic of someone who doesn't know God is to say, do what feels good. And that kind of sums up what this verse is talking about. Why would you want to pursue sensuality and lust? Because it feels good. Why would you want to pursue drunkenness? Because it feels good, at least for a little while. Why would you want to pursue partying and idolatry? because it feels good and and reaches a particular result at least for a little while. But if you stop living that way, 
You now have a good conscience before God because you're not living in those sins. But those who say, wait a minute, didn't you used to do this with us? Or wait a minute, why don't you do this with us? They're going to accuse you of being morally superior or of being hypocrites or whatever else, right? In all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them to the same excesses of dissipation, of just pursuing whatever you want, as long as you want, as far as you want, and they malign you. If that was your life, and your friends say, why aren't you living that way anymore? That's going to quickly jump to them criticizing you and mocking you and saying that you're foolish. Should we be concerned about such accusations? If we are in fact living that way, yes, because it means we need to recognize that that sin has been dealt with, we can't live in it anymore, and we need to have a good conscience before God, and we cannot have a good conscience before God when we live in sin. But to the extent that we are not living in sin, but now living for God, and they say, hey, you're foolish because here's all these things that you could enjoy. For one, the things that they say that you should enjoy are not, in the long run, all that enjoyable, right? It's one thing to feel good for a brief while if you're having a few drinks. It's another thing to be passed out drunk, throwing up in the toilet, and having a hangover the next day. It's one thing to say, this feels really good to go commit immorality with all these random people. It's another thing when you see the string of destroyed relationships and diseases and, more importantly, the fact that you've made a mockery of something that God sees as holy. It seems really great for a little while, but it's not in the long run. Idolatry seems great for a little while. Hey, here's a God that I can worship on my own terms and I don't have to follow what it says. But by the same token, if you can tell your God what to do, your God can't help you in your time of need. So these things that the Gentiles hold up as being the epitome of great things to live for and experience in the end, turn on you and destroy you and make you miserable. But that's not really Peter's point. Peter's point is they're going to mock you, but you shouldn't be concerned about their attitude about what you're doing. You need to be concerned about God's assessment. Verse 5, They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who finally evaluates your life? It's God. It's appointed man once to die, and after this comes judgment by whom? By God. Or Jesus put it this way, don't fear those who can kill your body, but him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. God is the one that we should be afraid of. Just like God said to Isaiah, don't be afraid of the people, fear me. Peter is saying, don't be afraid of people around you. No matter what they might say about you, no matter what they might do to you, no matter what might happen, you need to fear God and God's final assessment on your life. Verse 6, the gospel has been preached even to those who are dead that though they are dead in the flesh and judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. There's a couple of possibilities for what this means. I think probably the best understanding of it is that those who are now dead. Here are people who, from a secular perspective, have wasted their life, been foolish, and have lost. But the reality is, those who have died in Christ have not lost. Those who have died believing and following after God faithfully have not missed out. 
And this parallels the point that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians 4. Peter is saying they're going to evaluate you and anybody like you as foolish and weak and pitiable. But God's assessment is the one that matters. We see a parallel to this, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 1, where it says, You who are troubled, rest with us, because there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return and vindicate His followers. Even if that day is long after you are dead, God's final assessment of those who believed in Jesus is, they believed what is right, they did what is right, they're acceptable to me because of Jesus and their faith in Him and the work I've done in them. And so it really doesn't matter if everybody around you thinks that you're foolish for following after God. It really doesn't matter if they say, oh, you're too good to do blah, 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 whatever the thing is that they think that you should do. What matters is God's assessment. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 4.3, I'm not judged by you, Corinthians, or any human court. I don't even judge myself. God is the one who's going to evaluate me. Have I been a faithful steward, a good servant? Paul's goal was to have a good conscience before God that he had preached the gospel to everybody God wanted him to tell it to. Peter's goal for his audience is that instead of facing the evil words and actions of people and sort of caving to them and saying, uh, how can I keep following after God in the face of this opposition? We can stand confidently if we have a right heart and conscience before God. How does that come? Jesus dealt with my sin. I don't deal with my sin. If you're still trying to deal with your sin and saying, I'm going to work my way to God, you can't have a good conscience and you can't do what Peter's calling you to do in this passage. But if you have stopped trying to deal with your sin on your own and you've said, Jesus paid it all in my place and that's what I'm trusting in, then that is the beginning of the possibility of a good conscience before God. And there's going to be moments when you and I are going to struggle with old patterns of sin. And, you know, I mean, obviously if you trusted Jesus when you were five or six, it's probably not patterns of like robbing banks and shooting people and things like that. But even if you're an adult, it's not necessarily things that society sees as really bad. But that doesn't mean there aren't sinful habits and practices that still need to be fought against throughout the course of our lives. But in Jesus, we have the possibility of victory over those things. In Jesus, we have this appeal to God for a good conscience that we're supposed to walk in Him. We get baptized saying, I'm, I'm following after God, I'm professing faith in God, I'm trusting in God through Jesus. Peter's saying, so live it out. And to the extent that you live it out, and you have a good conscience before God and in the sight of people, they can accuse you of anything they want to accuse you of. They can do anything they want to do to you. God, in the end, is going to assess your life and say, this person knows me, follows me, lived for me. By my strength, I upheld him. I'm bringing him home. And that's what matters. So what do you have in common with Jesus, with Noah, with those who have gone before, who've hoped in God? If you actually know Jesus, you have the possibility to preach the gospel, the good news of salvation, through your word and life, through persecution, with a good conscience. And that's what Peter's calling you to do. Let's pray.
Father, we are not sufficient in ourselves for these things. But in Christ, all things are possible. We cannot save ourselves, but your great power can save us. We cannot defeat sin on our own, but by your help we find victory over it. We cannot have the response that Jesus and Stephen and so many others, even Peter himself had, to the accusation and persecution and rejection of the world. Not a response of hate and trying to defend ourselves and trying to make people love us when apart from you they have no reason to. In you we find the possibility of living and holding out a good testimony and pointing people to the hope that is in us, not because of us, but because of you, but an opportunity to share that hope. But that opportunity only exists to the extent that we actually love and follow you and are fighting against sin and are walking in the path that you've laid out for us to walk. So Lord, help us to have that attitude, to have that resolve, to arm ourselves for that same purpose as Jesus did, to cling to a good conscience, not by our own efforts, but because you have cleansed us. Use us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.